Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Tim Palmer. He's a prolific nature writer and photographer and has won awards from, among other places, the National Wildlife Federation, the Sierra Club, and American Rivers. He's here with me today because he's authored a new book titled Seek Higher Ground, the Natural Solution to Our Urgent Flooding Crisis. Mr. Palmer, welcome to the program. Thank you, Grant. It's great to be here with you today. Well, it's good to have you. So let me just start with a real basic question. How'd you get the idea to, to write this book now on, on flooding? What, what, uh, what's the story behind it? Well, it goes way back. I was a victim of flooding in, okay. get this, 1972. <laughs> and some people in your area may remember the Hurricane Agnes flood. It was the most damaging flood in American history up to that time. And I happened to live at Ground Zero in North Central Pennsylvania, near Williamsport. Okay. And uh, my home was almost flooded, not quite. It went up to the uh, the next step would have got us in the at the front entrance. But my neighbors were flooded and you know seriously damaged, and I helped them and became engaged in emergency services. I was also working as the county planner at the time. On the planning staff, I was the environmental planner. So as soon as I got back to work, I had the job of not just questioning how we could help flood victims, but how we could prevent this kind of disaster from occurring again. And that was the seed. Okay. I I worked as a planner, and then I started writing full-time, and this has been a long time ago. I've written many books about rivers and river conservation since, but the flood issue has always been very close to my heart and in my mind. And then we came to global warming and the floods are getting way worse. So I think you can see this unfolding now. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, Hurricane Agnes. I remember that as a, as a kid, I I grew up in the Washington DC area and I can remember that came through. Um, We weren't flooded in, in our neighborhood, but the main, uh, artery uh, road was, and that had never happened before. And uh, my dad and I went down there to just to see it and and look at them, uh, watch them trying to clean that up. So I remember that hurricane very well. So, so well, give me a um, a recent uh, brief history, if you could, of flooding in the United States. Let's say since 1972, since Hurricane Agnes. You mentioned global warming and the fact that these have gotten worse but you know are there any general trends a little a little more specific than that 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 you think are important for our listeners to know yeah yeah quite a few of them actually but the uh you know for years and years we basically tried to deal with the flooding problem by attempting to stop the floods from occurring and doing that by building dams so we spent billions of dollars The Army Corps of Engineers alone built 400 flood control dams across the country. In spite of all that effort, flood damages continued to grow worse and worse and worse. The fundamental reason is people kept building more and more and more in the floodplains. So even though the Corps was working as hard as they could to stop floods, we still had floods. More and more people were subject to damage. And now we have the dangers, too, of dams failing and that kind of thing. 
The other essential approach was to build levees, not to stop floods from occurring, but to keep them away from us. And, you know, levees fail and levees overtopped. And Wilkes-Barre, the, the, again, the Hurricane Agnes flood, 100,000 people, bam, flooded because the levee failed. Mm. So these two essential approaches were not working in terms of, of limiting flood damage. And so um, yeah, as a planner, you know, I was um, immersed in this issue, no pun intended, <laughs> but it was evident to me that we had to simply quit developing more and more on the floodplains and instead protect them as open space. It's the most dangerous, most expensive place to develop with all kinds of not just private costs, but public costs. And secondly, we had to help people relocate out of the danger zone wherever they were willing to go. So this dual approach to me made way more sense. You get rid of the problem that way. And um, so I kind of worked on those lines as a planner. We got zoning accepted in all 52 of our local municipalities. We launched a buyout program. I left the planning career, began writing full-time. This is 32 books ago. But the flooding issue has also been one that has interested me greatly. And as the data has come in on global warming and its effects on floods, this to me just augmented the importance and the urgency of understanding this subject better and understanding the, the path that we must follow if we're to, to get out of the, uh, the jam that we're in today with this. Yeah, you just you just gave us a glimpse of sort of the the central uh, positive argument of your book of of what what we ought to do instead, and I want to explore that with you a little bit later. But let me just stick with this other thing first, and I'll come back to that. Now, uh, you talked about this. There are two things going on in creating this this problem, and your focus is mostly on the United States. I was just wondering, have you have you looked around the world? Similar patterns? Anything there that that, that strikes you? Yeah, I have a little bit, Grant, but, uh, you know, the flooding issue in the United States is so enormous, and, and I had a limited number of words for my book with the University of California Press, so I didn't really uh, get into that very deeply, but I did look at in a few sections I addressed that. Worldwide, the problems are even more serious mm. because there's even less activity in trying to regulate development or help people move, take Bangladesh, okay, exhibit A. Millions of people, many millions of people subject to flood hazards and they live at sea level, you know, so they not only have river flooding, but they have the rising sea level issue to deal with. And the projections for the numbers, the increasing numbers of people subjected to flood damage worldwide are truly mind-boggling, and I have I cover that in the book. My main purpose in doing that is is not so much to inform about the world situation or figure out what other countries need to do, but to point out how important it is that we try to lead the way. We have the ability, we have the knowledge, we have the talent, we have the staff, we have the history. To come to grips with this problem, if we would just get over the political hurdles involved, we have the ability and all of what's needed to show the world a better way. But, you know, we're not doing it. 
And so pointing to the direction we must follow, you know, in the United States was my primary goal, even in terms of uh, addressing the problems of the rest of the world. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Tim Palmer. He's a nature writer and photographer and the author of the new book, Seek Higher Ground, The Natural Solution to Our Urgent Flooding Crisis. So you mentioned that global warming has obviously made this problem worse, but also where housing is being located and decisions about that have made the problem worse. It may th- This may not be terribly important to try to figure out which which one of those two things has been more of a driver, but I am sort of curious, did you come to any sense? Is it is which one's the worst culprit, global warming and the change in climate or where we're putting these houses in the first place? Well, where we're developing is the fundamental problem here. Mm. I mean, since the beginning of time, there have been floods. It's part of the hydrologic cycle. It's the way nature works. We wouldn't even have valleys to build in if it weren't for floods forming that landform in time. And so, you know, we've always had floods. Um, we've never been effective in in r- helping people to build in the proper places and making it harder to build in the improper places. And so it's it's a matter, the global warming issue is a matter of more urgency now and a matter of degree. It's simply telling us that hey, this has always been a problem. And now this problem is getting way worse unless we do some really effective reforms right away. One of the things that you do spend some time talking about in the book is our system of uh, flood insurance in this country. And uh, uh, it hasn't it hasn't worked well, you argue. So, But first, if you can do this briefly, I know it's a very complicated subject, but briefly, how does the system work for those who have never considered having to get it or, you know, dealt with this? So flood damages are more severe and serious than fire damages to a home. There are more of them. They're more costly. It's more widespread. Yet uh, we all have fire insurance, you know, but we don't have flood insurance. One reason is it's too expensive. The insurance industry is well-informed. They know that selling flood insurance is not a money-making job for them. So it costs way too much for people to afford. So nobody bought it. The floods keep coming. The federal agencies, and there's very enlightened people involved in them back in the 50s and the 60s, recognized this. And so they came up with a brilliant formula here. And that was that we we should offer subsidized federal flood insurance so that all these victims of floods who are already living on floodplains through really perhaps no fault of their own so that they can afford insurance. But the deal is to do that, the local municipality needs to zone the floodplains so that the damages don't continue to become worse and worse. Okay. So so it was this two-part bargain that was that was developed here. And then after the Agnes flood, it was realized that almost nobody had flood insurance. I met Wilkesbury, I mentioned Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, where the levee failed in 1972. A hundred thousand people were evacuated and flood. Two of them had flood insurance. Two. 
even with the federal program. So the the people in charge at that point had the the the, the additional brilliant idea that we should tie this to the federal insured mortgage system so that if people wanted a federally backed mortgage which virtually all of them are the community had to be enrolled in the flood insurance program and thereby zone the land that is subject to hazard so that was passed and i was a county planner at the time and i think i speak for many in saying that we that we thought we had come across the bridge here that we were going to solve this problem in the long term because number one we won't have much more development in the floodplain number two what development is there will eventually phase out because of the flood issues but it didn't work out that way what happened instead was largely owing to influence of the development industries banking real estate home building the federal process became somewhat of a captive and when the actual regulations came down and when the money was appropriated and all those kinds of things the program ended up being watered down way too much to be as effective as it should have been the restrictions on development were not tight enough the mapping of floodplains was not effective enough the target of a hundred year floodplain is not big enough. Now the floods are way bigger than that. And the, you know, and the money that, that made available for this just, just didn't do the job. So what we need to do now is, and what we've needed to do ever from day one is reform that program to be more effective. And there are good, practical, real ways of doing that. Well, we'll get into some of those in the second half. It's interesting. When you started telling me that story, the first thing, I'm a political scientist. First thing that popped into my head is the politics of the zoning must have been out the, out the wazoo. And of course, that is exactly the story you told me. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Tim Palmer. He's a nature writer and photographer, and he's with me because he's recently written a new book titled Seek Higher Ground, A Natural Solution to our urgent flooding crisis. And we've been discussing this book. So I can see what you said before the break there, that as we have also done more of this development, as floods have gotten worse, and at the same time, you have that political and economic dynamic. It's basically, if you'll excuse the pun, I'm sure there's a lot of these in this topic, but a perfect storm for a problem. Um, so how would you change just the the flood insurance plan. I know you've got a larger argument to make, but just in terms of this flood insurance plan, how would you tighten that up? I mean, how can you push back against that kind of influence? Yeah, just another footnote on the issues of the program. Sure. It's actually worse than I described. It's so bad that insurance, in many cases, has become an incentive to build on the floodplains. Ah. Because now taxpayers are shouldering the burden of the damage, you know, rather than just the individual. So, you know, the, the, this whole story is a great illustration of the law of unintended consequences. So how would you fix it? Well, there, this is a big subject, of course. There's an organization called the Association of State Floodplain Managers that has a whole agenda on how FEMA, the Federal Energy Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Congress should reform the program. But let me just highlight 
a couple of things that should be really easy to do, okay? One is that people can get payouts from the insurance program after damage without limit. There, there are limits on the amounts, but number of floods are unlimited. There are actually homes that have been flooded and paid by taxpayers for flood damage 18 and 20 different times. There are many places that have been paid more than the entire value of the house. And these are called repeatedly flooded properties. And uh, they make up 1% of the policies in the federal flood insurance program, but they account for 30% of the payout costs. Okay. So this is an outrage to have to, for someone to own a property. And frequently these are not the people living on floodplains because they have no other place to go. Many of these are like trophy homes along the coastal areas that are used as rental properties. And, you know, they just keep getting hammered and rebuilt, tax pay hammer, get taxpayer payouts rebuilt. And tax, we're all paying for that. So limiting the repeated damage payouts should be a no-brainer. Same problem. Development industries come in there and say, well, you know, as long as somebody's willing to pay us to rebuild these houses, we're going to rebuild them. Yeah. And so that's number one. It should be easy to change. Number two should be a disclosure requirement on flood damage. When you want to sell a house, you have to do a, a deed search to assure the buyer that you're actually owned, that you actually own the house you're selling to them. Mm -hmm. This is to protect the buyer. There is no disclosure of flood damage. So the people buying a home have no idea that it floods. That's interesting because there's disclosures for lead paint. There's disclosures for all sorts of expenses and repairs that that home has had. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. So the poor people buying the place aren't required to be told. They, of course, can look themselves. But let me tell you about my own experience on this. I was going to buy a cabin along the Rogue River in Oregon, the place cabin of my dreams, Okay. So I met with a the realtor there and uh, kind of looked things over and asked, you know, do, is this exposed to flood hazards? It didn't quite pass my eyeball test as a guy who's worked with rivers all my life. And she said, oh, yes, they built a dam upstream. It will never flood again. And that didn't quite pass my sniff test of the negotiation. So I went straight to the county planning office. I was able to do this, fortunately, looked up the maps, and sure enough, I was right in the floodway, waiting for another atmospheric river with my name on it. So I, of course, declined to buy that property, but somebody else did, and they probably had no idea it was going to flood. Hmm. So disclo disclosure should be a requirement. We pay for these flood maps for FEMA to do. It should be public knowledge. The, uh, you know, the, the, the arguments to not let people know what they're buying are, you know, are just, just don't fly. So that's a second big thing. A third kind of reform that's needed is in the cost schedule for how much is paid for flood insurance. And to their credit, FEMA is moving on this issue and reforming the cost schedule so that those properties that account for the biggest payouts when they flood are actually paying more for the insurance 
than the poor people who just, you know, through no fault of their own, live in the floodplain and get hammered repeatedly. So those are three reforms that should be easy to do. There are many others. We we need to more effectively map floodplains. We need to have the 500-year rather than a 100-year flood be the principal guiding metric in this. We need, we need to include the effects of global warming because they are going to make floods way, way bigger. But but those are just a few of re the really practical things that can be done, that should be done, that must be done to reform the program. So I want to get to some of the big picture things here in the last part of our conversation. But let me just check one impression that I've gotten from something you said earlier and make sure I've got that fact right. And that's you were talking about dams and levees originally. So I just want to make sure I understand this. One of the trends I assume that we've seen along with the flooding is that more dams have been failing than before. Is that correct? Okay. And mm -hmm. the same thing with the levees that they yeah. I mean, I obviously everyone thinks of Katrina, but yeah. Okay. Excuse me to clarify. No, go ahead. With, with all credit to the army Corps, most of the dam failures are not core dams that were built for flood control. Okay. But some are, and the Bureau of Reclamation built, for example, Teton Dam in Idaho, which failed while it was being filled. It caused more flood damage than an entire network of Snake River dams had prevented in flood damage over the course of history. Most of the dam failures, however, are private dams that are, have been poorly regulated, poorly monitored, many of them without even owners anymore. So... Uh, but nonetheless, like, the, like, the, like, like, like the story of the Johnstown flood, you know, that, that exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell conversations on WRVO public media. And my guest is the nature writer, Tim Palmer. So I want to get to some of the bigger questions that your book gets at. And I, I, I want to first ask you before we get to your, the, the argument that's kind of embedded in the title of your book, but but flooding itself, how will more regular and less constrained flooding help us, help the planet? Why is it good? Yes, yes, yes. There's a whole other side to the flooding coin here that we have not talked about, that almost nobody talks about. And that is that floods are not only inevitable in the workings of nature, but they're essential to the workings of nature. We actually need to have floods. The, uh, it's the way landforms are formed. It floods account for the very best of our wildlife habitat. They're needed by fish for their habitat. Floods are what deliver sand to the beaches. We wouldn't have beach. If you like beach sand at the ocean, you got to like floods. If you like fish, you got to like floods. And so they are part of the natural process of the way the earth works that we have failed to really recognize and give credit for. And so your title is, you know, seek higher ground. So that's really, okay. So, so ultimately your bottom line solution to this is we need to locate in different places. Uh, is tell, first of all, if you could briefly, cause I want to have a follow-up to this. What do you mean by that? Is that just like, where we should be doing new construction, where people should be thinking about buying homes, all the above. Yeah, yeah. So we need to, uh, number one, effectively zone our floodplains so that they are not developed more than they already are. Two very interesting statistics on this. 90% of our floodplain acreage is not heavily developed. 
So the problem could get about nine times worse than it now is mm. if it were all developed. Okay. So we need to protect what still is open space. Second number here is 7%, and that is the total floodplain area of the United States. There are a lot of other places to go to build, and not that that will be easy, but 97% of America is not floodplain. So much of that is more suitable for development than the high hazard areas of floodplains that we have. So that's number one, we need to protect what is still open space. Number two, a lot of people are already there. And of course, we're we're not gonna move St. Louis, you know, or Memphis or Portland, Oregon and so forth. We need to protect them effectively with levees. But most of the area that that is being that is in fl a flood hazard area is not heavily developed and in those areas we should look at every possibility we can to help people relocate and get up out of the safety zone i interviewed some very interesting people in my book who did this and you know and their their stories are inspiring really on on how you know people can come to grips with this problem and actually solve it rather than just staying to worry and 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 stress about the next flood to come yeah, I would think that, first of all, the trauma of being flooded would be huge. And second of all, worrying about, it, as you just said, would be huge. There is one question, though. We've got about a minute and a half left. So I want to give you a little bit of time to, to think about this. But what you just said, though, will be easier for some people than others, right? And 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 I'm thinking primarily because of economics. So that dislocation that might be involved in moving could be disastrous for some folks. So I would think that you'd have to build into this some kind of additional help for the people who need it. And and very briefly in about a minute or so, how would you do that? That's absolutely right. And and a lot of agencies are doing precisely that. The number one, very few, if any, public agencies are requiring people to move. This is the the, the programs to help people relocate are all are essentially all voluntary. Government agencies, there's federal money, there's state money, there are local districts that all work toward helping people move if they want to. There's a lot of grant money available to do that, but it's not nearly enough. And, and here's another great pair of numbers. These are the two I'll leave you with. For every $1.70 our federal government spends helping people to move away from flood danger and be done with the problem, the federal government spends $100 helping people to stay by helping pay for, quote, flood proofing. It doesn't work very well to, to, to help with public facilities that get damaged. So we need to reverse that ratio so that we're really helping people to move rather than to stay. That was Tim Palmer. And again, his new book is titled Seek Higher Ground, The Natural Solution to our urgent flooding crisis. It's an important book. It's evidence-based. It's got a lot of good material in there, but it's also very, very readable. So I highly recommend it. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. It's been, it's been wonderful to be with you today. Great. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRVO Public Media. 
to learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrvo.org slash Campbell Conversations.